follow, was following his trail that evening, I just dedicated my life to the animal liberation cause. I just found the world to live. And I just realized in that moment, no, it is not over. It is not over for you. You've still got a lot to give. You can turn this thing around. You can, as I said, dedicate your life to the animal liberation cause. You've got a story to tell. You can you can make a difference, man. This This doesn't need to be the end. As a vegan, do you ever feel like you're living in a parallel universe, aware of things that many others don't even seem to notice, let alone acknowledge? I'm Chrissy Benson, host of the Vegan Posse podcast. We talk with vegans from around the globe who, like you, are living lives of integrity and compassion with an eye toward justice through their personal stories. You'll come to see that you're not an outlier. In fact, you're part of an entire posse of individuals who aren't just keeping the peace, they're creating it through their food choices, and beyond. You won't be saddling up, but you're in for the ride of your life. Welcome to the Vegan Posse. Hey, Posse. It's your host, Chrissy Benson. If you love being part of the Posse, help spread the word by liking this podcast, subscribing, and sharing it with everyone you know. And if you're looking for the perfect holiday gift for your book-loving friends, check out my novel, Marrying Myself, by me, Christine Melanie Benson. Known as the anti-romance romance with the vegan twist, it's been featured in Veg News Magazine and on Chef AJ Live. It's available on Amazon and everywhere else. Or you can order a personalized signed copy through my website, christinemelaniebenson.com. But more than anything, know that during this holiday season, you are not alone. You've got a posse. Thanks, guys. Now, on to our episode. Today, the Vegan Posse welcomes J.H. Burnett. J.H. of Wilderness, South Africa, is an ex-farmer who's now a full-time vegan activist and author. He's been plant-based for five years and fully vegan for the animals for two and a half years. He's got a unique story that I guarantee you don't want to miss. J.H., welcome to the Vegan Posse. Are you ready for the ride of your life? Thank you so much. What a brilliant introduction. I really love it. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. When I started this podcast, my vision was to feature vegans from around the globe, and that's been happening beyond what I could have imagined. So I've had guests from all over the United States and also from Canada, Australia, Poland, New Zealand, and the UK. So you live in a place called Wilderness. Is that right? That's right. It's a small, rural little town uh, right by the coast in the Western Cape. Yeah, so it's a privilege to be uh, representing all the South Africans out there. No pressure. Yeah. Eh? <laughs> so before we get into some of your more recent story, I learned from your ebook, Ex Farmer Goes Vegan, that South Africa has deep cultural ties to eating meat. And there's even a national barbecue day. So did you you ever think about the animals in our food system when you were growing up? Goodness gracious. Unfortunately, I didn't. Yeah, I was was quite oblivious to the suffering going on all around me. I mean, I was literally surrounded by it. I mean, as I guess everybody in the world, I mean, you only need to open your eyes and you'll see it for yourself. I mean, they, they are everywhere you look, if only you look. 
but unfortunately I never did. Or it took me, let's say it took me 29 and a half years to sort of open my eyes and see the truth for what it is, for what it's always been. So no, unfortunately, you know, growing up in this meat-loving culture, um, I was very much oblivious to the suffering. Although looking back now, I struggle to, you know, to to make sense of it. How how could I have been, if that makes sense? Yes, it makes total sense. And we're all oblivious. You know, we're we're taught and conditioned into being oblivious to it. So. I don't, I don't think you should feel any, any shame or surprise about that. Um, So you've got, you've got an incredible story. You went from being a sheep farmer and even an artificial insemination breeder in the dairy industry to now being a full-time vegan activist and author. So why don't you tell us the story? How did you first become involved in animal farming? Okay. Fantastic. Okay. All right, please feel free to jump in whenever a question you know, arises. But, you know, to take you back to the beginning, my family, they've got a farm in South Africa, right? And what makes this farm truly unique, I won't say special, just unique, is that it is the oldest family-owned farm in all of South Africa. So I grew up loving this place, right? And I was sort of brainwashed into believing that it is the best farm in all of South Africa, which it really isn't, right? It's, it's a myth. But, I mean, growing up, I used to think it is. And um, I also thought, you know, that farming at one day would be the ultimate honor, like the honor of a lifetime. But I knew it was never on the cards because I was sort of born into the wrong side of the family, like I call it so. Uh, the black sheep, if you will, you know, excuse the, you know, the expression, but... Um, so it was never on a course for me to farm it, so I gave up that dream long ago already. And but by let's by the turn of 2018, I was 29. I just turned 29. The call came in. I was farming another family farm down in the Western Cape in the town of Worcester. When the call came in and say, "Listen, JH, would you and your wife be interested in moving to this farm?" which is like in the great Karoo of South Africa and a semi-desert area, uh, would you be willing to give up everything? Because you really need to. I mean, you can't do anything other than farm this farm because it's literally like 40 kilometers gravel road from the nearest small town. But would you be interested in moving there and taking over from your grandfather? So my grandfather, time at the time, he was 83 years old already. So the idea was that I was going to farm alongside him, sort of under his leadership uh, on the sheep farm for two years. And then I'm going to take over this farm and I'm going to end up inheriting it, which was to me was huge. It was a huge deal. I mean, I was so excited. Both my wife and I, we actually leaped at the opportunity. My wife still stayed behind in our hometown of Worcester because she had a small business. And she needed a couple of months to close that down. But me and my two bull terrier dogs, now those are the dogs of these long noses, right? Me and my two bull terriers, unfortunately, one has passed since then. But me and the two bull terriers, we moved there straight away. And uh, we were so excited, I mean, me and my wife. We were so excited to almost, just to be a part of this, of the history of it all, because at the time it had been in our family for 248 years. And 
we saw it as something truly special. And um, of course, we knew that we're going to be farming with sheep. But as we have already established, I was completely oblivious to the suffering of, of the innocent animals. So we moved there not caring, you know, having no, with no vegan background. I've never met another vegan. Can you imagine this? Eh? At the age of 29, to go 29 years without meeting a single vegan. So I'd never seen an animal liberation documentary. I'd never read an, read an article, no nothing. No vegan foundation whatsoever. Moved to the farm. I'm now the ninth generation was gonna farm this place, uh, farming with sheep. And um, so that's how I ended up working there. So without a vegan foundation, I, from a vegan perspective, I had to almost learn on the job, so to speak. I, I saw it didn't make sense. I questioned it. I wasn't happy with the answers that I got. And I just persisted. And that led me, both my wife and I, to veganism. And you, uh, you know, feel free to, I mean, if there's any questions. Well, yeah, uh, I just, just don't want, I don't want to of, rumble on too much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's a fascinating story. And I want, I want to hear you tell it in your own words. I've got just a couple of, of questions. First of all, I'm just curious how it came about that you were offered this opportunity because you you had mentioned being born into the the wrong side of the family. Did did something change with somebody on the right side, you know, turn around <laughs> yeah. this opportunity yes. or how did it happen that you got this call? So, um my side of the family including my dad and my grandfather and my uncle they said that they're going to buy out the other shareholders. So we outside sort of, as I said, the wrong side. And they said, okay, listen, currently my grandfather's only renting it from his sisters, from his other siblings, because they had all inherited. So they were like five shareholders. And so my grandfather, my uncle, my father stepped in and said, no, this ain't right. We need to secure the farm. And they said, okay, we're going to buy it from the other shareholders. So there was a two-year deal put on this. Um, so everybody agreed and said, okay, we're going to pay X amount for the farm. And JH will then become the sole, basically, um, yeah, owner of the farm. And then with my father and grandfather and them being sort of um, trustees in the larger operation and also benefiting from it financially. So that's sort of how it came to be, how five share shareholders were going to become one if that makes right, sense. Right, right. Yes, that makes sense. And sure. I don't know a lot about sheep farming. Were you raising the sheep for wool or for meat or or both? How does it work? So both the, the sheep that we had, yeah, we we unfortunately we use them for both. So you would shear them twice a year. And then as most sheep they would end up in a slaughterhouse in a local slaughterhouse which is of course absolutely brutal um but yeah so they were used for both so so you ended up taking over this farm you made this big move which was the opportunity to be part of your family's history i mean that really is incredible the oldest family-owned farm in south africa that really is incredible and i can understand why that would have meant so much to you at the time um what what was it like when you started working on this farm 
so you're right in saying that, yeah, there was a lot of sentiment. That's sort of the word that I like to use was a, a sentimental journey. But uh, on a practical level, from a vegan perspective, it wasn't a good fit from the get-go. Literally, I started making, I made my first vegan connection. I call it like a vegan love connection, literally on my first morning on the farm. So what had happened is I was taken um, where they were docking the sheep, right? Now the docking, for those of you who don't know, the docking of sheep means the cutting off of the tails of small little innocent frail little lambs. Can you imagine that? So there why, I was. Why do walking. they do that? What's the what's the idea behind docking their tails? So so the idea is to so what would happen is their feces would get caught in between their tails in the wool, in the thick wool between their tails and their bums, if I can say it so. So, and that would call, could potentially cause diseases and the flies would, you know, start breathing there. So they cut off the tail to prevent, you know, the feces from getting stuck in that area. Um, so therefore farmers will say, oh, but, but we're doing it for the benefit of the sheep. We're not doing it for our benefit, but however, these sheep were unfortunate, they were bred you know, into existence and they were now being bred for wool production, if that makes sense. So their wool keeps on getting thicker and thicker and thicker. So this isn't, this never happens in nature, for example. For example, foxes or, you know, wild hounds, they don't have that sort of issue. It is in, it's obviously when it comes to breeding sheep, then you're going to start having those issues. So that's sort of from a farmer's perspective, why they dog the sheep. I see. Yeah. Thank you for explaining yeah. that. Yeah. It's, okay. it's, it's amazing how, how these animals change thanks to the genetic selection mm, for course. these particular qualities. And then it causes all these unexpected ramifications. And of course, of course, it's always the animals who end up suffering because of it. Yeah, um, so, so what happened that first morning on the farm, yeah. you needed to do that? So, <laughs> no, no. So I was sort of the silent observer, right? Just with the attitude of almost uh, teach me all you have to know because I also I didn't know the industry my grandfather had been doing it for his entire life and uh, obviously the guys who worked there as well I mean they worked with sheep their fathers worked with sheep their grandfathers worked with sheep so they would say it's in our blood almost right so I was a silent observer just saying teach me all you have to know and there we were in this pen and I had to observe, obviously, these big guys grabbing these small little lambs. And if these lambs could speak, eh, man, they would be like, I guess, just, what are you doing to me, man? I mean, they're crying for their mothers. Obviously, they are in great distress. And to see their tails get cut off with a pair of semi-blunt, rustic old garden scissors was fairly traumatic for me. Um, and I just, my heart just broke for this, those innocent beings. And that night, I, I had walked with this thing within me. This, it's just, if I can say, my heart was just troubled by it. And I sort of suffered through that the entire day. And by the end of it, uh, as the sun started to set, um, I drove out into the field where the sheep slept, right? I just wanted to go che uh, check up on those lambs just to make sure that they are right. Of course, the guys working on the farm said, oh, Jade, what are you worrying for, man? It's just the way we do things around here. There'll be more than fine. There's nothing to worry about. But I just, I needed to see for myself. So I drove out then and I found the herd 
and the herd had already started to wander off for the evening and they had left behind two little frail bleeding little lambs right and these lambs were bleeding profusely and they were so weak obviously though that wound didn't heal properly that day and they were bleeding profusely where the tails had been cut off and um, they were so weak that they couldn't stand or walk properly anymore they would get up and sort of call after their mothers who had unfortunately also abandoned them in the hour of need and um, they were just suffering and, and falling over and I just stood there and I was just dumbfounded by the insanity of it all so I did the only thing that I knew how to or what to do and I I took them home with me and I literally took them into our house and I made them a nice little bed with blankets on the kitchen floor. And I treated their wounds to the best of my abilities and I fed them some nice formula milk. And I just sat them with them for most of the night, just loving on them, right? And looking into their eyes, I, I could see, you know, these beings, it just struck me, they are sentient. They, they, they can feel love and pain and fear and all the rest of it. And I was, while sitting there with them, and I'm just crying at this point in time, right? And literally next door are my two bull tethers, who at the moment, you know, whether true or not, I mean, I was never, that theory was never tested, but I felt at the time, you know, I would lay my life down for these two dogs. I love them so much, right? And I'm thinking of these two little bleeding, suffering little lambs, now, how can I be willing to eat them, yet love these two dogs so much? I mean, this sort of the old vegan, you know, comparison. It just struck me in that moment. And um, unfortunately, the next morning, both of the lambs had passed. And mm -hmm. it truly just broke my heart. And I called my wife and I told her the whole story. She was crying. She, she said, James, I'm leaving this business right now. If there are two suffering lambs, there will be more. I'm coming. I said, no, 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 don't worry about it. We will sort it out. And So my journey was filled with these little stories. Another one, if I can just throw it in there quickly, happened about a week or two after this one. I was sitting on the back porch one morning with my two dogs, having a nice cup of coffee, watching the sunrise. And uh, one of the guys working on the farm, he walked past my yard and we greeted one another. And then he sort of disappeared in the distance and he went into what we called the sick pen is where lambs would sleep uh, if they had lost their mothers, for example. Sometimes um, one of sheep would have twins and she wouldn't have enough milk for both. And one of them, the smaller one would end up in the sick pen. So this guy walked into the sick pen and I sort of stared in, you know, and I thought to myself, gosh, what is he doing? Because the next moment I saw him drag out a smaller lamb by her hind legs, right? And um, I sort of sat up right thinking, what is going on here? And I thought maybe she had passed in the night. Um, but then I saw, no, no, she still had fight in her, right? She still wanted to get up and he was holding her down. And the next moment, crazy as it may seem, this guy picked up a large rock of some kind and he started beating down on this small innocent being and I just jumped up and the dogs are barking at this point in time and my coffee's falling to the ground and I'm running and I'm shouting and you know, as in the case of most 
badly produced horror films. I'm struggling with the garden gate. I can't get it open in time. And I'm, you know, finally I get it open. I'm shouting at this guy, what are you doing? Stop, stop, stop. And whether he couldn't hear me or didn't want to, I still don't know to this day. I finally reached him because he just continued beating down on his land. And when I finally reached him, I just leaped at him and pushed him off of the land and just holding that innocent little being that bleeding, I mean, because he had struck her against the head of all things. I mean, just, it's absolutely, it was horrific. And um, I just held her as she literally took her last breath. And uh, of course, those things absolutely broke me, right? And we basically stopped eating meat immediately. We couldn't do it anymore. It was no longer just a piece of meat lying on my plate, but it was the severed limbs of an innocent being, right? And we had made that love, that vegan connection. Um, so you and you and your wife both made my, that my wife and I. Yeah. Yes. Yes. She, yes. She, she wasn't. She, even, she wasn't on the farm, but I assume you were. You were telling her. Sharing sure, experiences sure. with her. Yeah, she moved there about three months later, right? She, she had oh, made okay. that connection even before yeah. she came or before she went. There. Wow. Um, wow. So, so that sort of begs the question because I've had people ask me it, and it's a fair question. Um, why do you guys stay if you saw these atrocities? Because we saw many. We, I mean, this was but the tip of the iceberg. We saw many. Why do you stay? Um, it's because we quickly developed a dream. We developed a heart for animals and we wanted to establish a sanctuary on the farm, right? We, so the vision changed. We were no longer, if, if I could take over the farm in two years time, it was no longer going to be a full on sheep farm. No, it's going to turn into a sanctuary and it's going to be self-sustainable. And I had a business model and I was so excited. We really? only need to we only need to hang in there for two years. And very often we'd say, no, we can't do it. We got to go. And we started looking for jobs and we started making plans on moving on of our lives. And then we just sort of tell one another, no, no, listen, we've got an opportunity. I mean, we, we're going we're gonna to own the oldest family-owned farm in the country. If you think of all the bloodshed, that had happened over 250 years, we've got an opportunity to turn it around and to start a, a legitimate sanctuary on the farm. And um, we actually did start a, a smaller, very unofficial little sanctuary at the back of our house. Um, and how that came to be, we didn't go look for the, we had a long-term vision, but we didn't, we never expected to start something smaller, right? Uh, while still farming with the sheep. So what had happened is one of our neighbors uh, who lived about 30 kilometers down the road from us, he was in the process of moving away uh, out of the district, right? And um, he phoned me one evening. He said, hey, Jage, uh, I still wanted to swing by your place and just come, you know, greet you guys before we left. But our, pl our plans sort of changed. Uh, we need to go immediately. We're leaving early in the morning. So just, I just want to say thank you for everything. It was nice getting to know you and basically enjoy your life, right? So him and I, you know, shared a couple of thoughts. And as I was about to put down the phone, 
I got what we like to call almost like a ping from the universe, right? And I was about to put down the phone. I said, no, wait, 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 wait. And it was like, what is it? I said, last time I was over there at your place, I remember you had three little runner ducks. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever seen a runner duck, but it's the cutest thing alive. If you haven't seen it, you should really go Google it. It is the cutest little duck you've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> almost funny looking, right? And I asked him, because he had a black one and a white one and a brown one. And I said, what's <laughs> going to happen with the runner ducks? And he said, well, funny, you should ask. I gave them to the two guys who worked for me. And they had just come here to collect them. And they're off to the one guy's house. They're now going to slaughter them, apparently for dinner. And I said, listen, not on my watch. I'm coming immediately. And I just left everything that I was busy with going in the car and just drove as fast as I could. And uh, reaching them, I drove over to their place. And they already had these little runner ducks tied up. And they were literally about to slaughter them. I said, guys, you know, they said, no, we're not going to give them to you. And I said, okay, fine, I'll buy them from you. So we ended up buying them. And with those three little runner dogs, we started our very unofficial little sanctuary. <laughs> and, and my wife and I, we, we told one another, we're not going to go looking for animals in need. The right animals will find us. And wow. I think as in the case of most sanctuaries, we blinked twice and we had 55 animals living. <laughs> so how long had you been on the farm at this point when you just immediately just did a 180 on your vision? Wow. So my wife hadn't been there. So I think probably about a month. And then we ended up taking in the free little runner ducks when she had just moved there. So let's say we had stopped eating meat within the first couple of weeks. We changed our vision within a month. And Amazing. we started our little unofficial sanctuary within, let's say, wow. four months. Did you tell anyone in your in your family? Like, did you tell your father or, you know, any of your relatives about this, this vision of yours? Sure, sure, sure. No, no, we had conversations. Most of them were hoping that it was sort of just a phase. It's going to blow over, right? Um, but no, no, we were very determined. I mean, you can imagine in a, because the whole, the whole community surrounding, you know, built around this little town called Kalfinga, it's all built on the meat industry, right? That's all that they do around there. There aren't any big financial sectors whatsoever in the, for hundreds of miles in any which direction. It's all sheep farming. So, but we were very upfront in saying, listen, we know we're still on the farm and we know we still get paid off of the backs of these sheep. And yes, it does break our hearts. Um, but we no longer eat meat, right? We didn't call ourselves vegans. We didn't feel worthy of the title because we were still paid you know, from the meat industry. But we would just say, we didn't even call ourselves plant-based. We just said, oh, no, no we don't eat meat. You know, We think mm -hmm. it's cruel. My wife and I even started, uh, we didn't do many episodes, uh, but we started a, uh, a vegan podcast in our native language of Afrikaans. So while still working and living on the sheep farm, we started this, 
um, this little side project, and it was called, well, it's Afrikaans, what is called Call Food Visa, which means directly, directly translated, which means basically barefoot beings. So, but it was a vegan podcast. So we were very outspoken about it. Most wow. people were hoping that, well, most people thought it's very weird and um, hoped that it would, you know, it would be a phase that would go by quite quickly. And uh, it never did. Yeah, yeah, here we are. We're still, we're still going. Yeah, that's that's just amazing. So this this shift, it it was almost immediate from from the moment you yeah, saw what was it happening. Was, it was, it was, it was, and it was ongoing. Um, the atrocities, because once your eyes are open, and now you're living on the sheep farm. Now, I mean, everywhere you look, you're seeing the most horrific things. So. So I don't know, maybe maybe it was meant to be that we moved there, that we made the shift because obviously, you know, as Steve Jobs once said that you can't connect the dots of your life looking forward. It's only when you look back, you know, it so, sort of makes sense where you can connect the dots. Um, never in a million years would we have thought that, I don't think I even knew what a vegan was. Of course, I'd heard of the term vegetarian when I moved to the farm, but never in a million years would I have believed you'd be said, no, Jade, you're going to become a vegan and then uh, an animal liberation activist. Gosh, it wasn't on the cards. Eh? Um, <laughs> I think that's yeah. true, true of a lot of us, but it's, perhaps even more so for you coming from that family that's just steeped in this farming tradition. Um, one thing I, I'd love for you to talk about a little bit, if you can, is um, we vegans, of course, understand that farmed animals suffered a great deal, but can you can you talk a little bit bit about the wild animals who are also the victims of animal agriculture, and you know what happened to the wild animals who wow. came around the sheep farm? Wow, what a brilliant question! Um, and uh, if you don't mind me saying so, but I can I can see that you you did read the book, which I really appreciate. Thank you so much. Um, fascinating, fascinating book. Yes. So yes. I recommend it to everybody yeah. listening. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So, thank you so much. You know, it really um, it breaks my heart talking about it because so what had happened is many of the wild animals, they would catch the sheep, especially the lambs. So they were seen as a massive threat to the farmer's existence, right? Financial existence. And um, so many farmers, including the farm where I lived, use poison to poison the wild animals. And of course, I was up in arms about this and I wrote several articles to the local newspaper and I tried to shift minds, and, but all to no avail, or to no avail. Um, so these wild animals, caracals and jackal and leopards, they were poisoned in cold blood. So what they would do is they would take giblets with small pieces of meat and they would put this poison inside the giblets and they would hang it on the fences surrounding the farm so that the wild animals would eat these poison giblets and of course then die before having the opportunity or getting the opportunity to catch the lambs. And so what happens is this has horrific consequences throughout the entire ecosystem because now you have different animals preying on the poison carcasses of these poison animals. So 
the cruelty is just never ending. It's just never ending. And I came across several dying animals, um, you know, animals in their final moments, frothing from the mouth, or just the most beautiful animals. And, and it just broke my heart and broke my mind. I couldn't get my head around it. It made no sense. Um, it's, and it's ongoing. I don't live there anymore, but it's it's going on today still. It's it's immensely cruel, isn't it? It's yeah, it's it yeah, yeah, in a nutshell, yes. Um, another story that really struck me in your book was um the story about the wild ostriches you used to see. Um, I think that was sure, as a kid, sure. maybe that was before, of course, before of course, you were on the course. farm. But you want to talk a little bit about them? Sure, sure, sure. So I'll do my best. It was on another family farm when I grew up. Um, my family, they don't own it anymore. Um, but they had a farm, and this won't mean much, but it's in a town called Riversdale outside of it. And uh, they had wild ostriches on the farm. Uh, and the most beautiful beautiful thing you've ever seen, I mean, these wild ostriches, they are, they are much bigger than normal ostriches because they're wild and they're free and they've got a lot of food and they're just enjoying their lives and they're all cooped up in small little spaces. And I remember as a kid being around about 11, 12, 13 years old, just admiring these ostrich, ostriches from a, from a distance because I'd never seen wild ostriches before this right? And uh, so, but what... What yeah, the individuals running this farm would do is they would they would set poles, right? Or they would plant poles about let's say a hundred meters, or let's say uh, I'm struggling, you know, converting to yards, but let's say 150 yards from one another. So they'll have these two poles sticking out from the ground around about two meters high. And what they will then do is they'll take they will um, put a tighten a, a wire between those two poles at roundabout, as I said, two meters high. So it is, uh, it is pulled very tightly, right? And then what they would do is they would send the, the individuals working for them on the farm and those guys would go on horseback and they would encircle uh, or they would go in behind the group of ostriches and they would chase them in the direction of of this wire, of this deadly weapon, so to speak, because ostriches, of course, they can't see this wire. They're heading, they're running full steam straight at this wire and they can't see it. They're running literally to their death and then they would end up striking it and they would break their necks. And then of course the individuals working on the farm, they would run in with machetes and start you know, cutting off the heads of these ostriches and just, standing then observing this insanity again you know it it so there was a moment in my youth where i did i guess made my first love connection but you know i was i quickly forgot and i moved on only when i became vegan and looking back on on those atrocities it struck me again you know seeing those baby ostriches who who were now left without mothers if that if that makes sense it's just if the group of ostriches, they charge at this wire, the first couple of them, the first five or so, would end up breaking their, their necks and the others would then escape and, 
And then three months later, they would, you know, do the same process again and again and again and again until they finally killed every last one of them. So, yeah, that is, that was a pretty horrific sight as a child. And were, were they killing them for meat or what was the intent behind this? Sure, sure. So, yeah, they, they ate them. Yes, yes, they they wow. would eat them, yeah, which is so unfortunate. So it was just an easy way for them to basically kill them because, of course, they wouldn't be able to haul them in. Uh, of course, the archers were too fast. And they would, I remember it being explained to me, now it's a cheaper way of killing them. Right now they don't have to waste the money for to buy bullets because it would okay. just, you know, it's two poles, a piece of wire and machetes. So it's <laughs> all of which they had so on the farm already. So yeah, right. immensely unfortunate and cruel. Wow, wow. Um, so getting back to the sheep farm, your your farm didn't have just sheep. You also had chickens. Is that right? Yes. So so yes. So I um, we saved most of the poultry on the farm. They were kept in absolute horrific conditions. I mean, most of them were basically on the verge of dying. They never got clean water. It was, I, I write about it quite extensively in the book, but we found the poultry in absolute horrific conditions. And there was a big fight for me to save these animals, right? And um, yeah, just to, to love on them and to treat their wounds and to treat them um, you know, against the diseases that they have and to, you know, start just giving it. These are simple things, man, to give them fresh water on a daily basis and to let them out and to have, you know, have them enjoy their lives. So these animals, the poultry wasn't used for food on the farm. Um, they were sort of just, uh, to this day, I still don't know why why they were taken there in the first place. Obviously, when I moved there, they were already there. Um because they were cooped up in the most horrific conditions. And yeah, so we ended up, we ended up helping them. We ended up rehoming them because this was still before we had the unofficial sanctuary. So we uh -huh. treated the, yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah. Right. So, right. Yeah, so it also had a massive impact on my life. Yeah, so it sounds them. like just even, even interspersed with all this, all this, you know, violence and this, you know, horrible business that you found yourself in the midst of. It sounds like you, you were able to help, you know, some animals even while you were still officially in the business. Do you, do you take some comfort from that? I do take some comfort. Yeah, because I mean, it's still farming off the sheep or getting paid off of their backs. Um, it 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 still haunts me to this day. But I do take some comfort in the fact that we were able to help, yeah. as I said, 55 animals and um, the poultry, they were also close to 50 animals. And, and when we, you know, when we saved them, if I can yeah. put it so, and rehomed them to genuine good homes, so we had a massive impact in their lives. And so it wasn't, it wasn't for nothing. And of course, um, we changed through the entire experience and hence we're still going with our vegan activism so had we not moved there we wouldn't be here today so you know it all 
that's why I say, I mean, who's to say, but maybe there was a reason for all of this, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. but it does still haunt me to this day. It, it's not a day goes by that I don't think about my time spent in, in the sheep and especially the dairy industry observing, you know, the blood and the gore and the insanity right. of it all. Right, right. I mean, what a, what a crazy trajectory. <laughs> I mean, who... Yeah, our our lives are so interesting how they how they play out. Um, but one thing I'd like to ask you about is a lot of people have this impression of of sheep as being dumb or easily duped. Can you give us mm. some sense of what what they're like once you get to know them? So I I got to spend a lot of time with them, especially over weekends, just sitting with them in the field and just observing them. It sort of I was fascinated by them because they are the most interesting, the most gentle creatures on earth. I really do believe so. And they are not stupid at all. I mean, they, they are, <laughs> they can detect fear. Oh, they can, they can detect danger and they, um, and they know the field so well. So they have, they will start moving away when they detect danger uh, approaching, right? And they will go into hiding and they will love on one another and they have the ability to build friendships and they can even read faces. I, I am dead certain of it and there's actually, this is but my opinion, but I've tried different facial expressions in moving to them. It's like as if they respond to different facial expressions and they know a friendly face when it approaches them. And they know an angry one and they know when danger is on the horizon and seeing them get slaughtered in cold blood on a weekly basis just absolutely broke my heart because you can see the fear in their eyes, but Fear, I've come to learn that fear, if fear is severe enough, it has a distinct distinct smell to it. You can smell a sheep's fear. It knows when it's in deep trouble, right? They will know, it's almost as if they know that they are now gonna get slaughtered, for example, and they fight with all their might to get out of that situation and to see them in their final moments and to see the desperation in their eyes and always calling out to you and said, please, man, I would do anything. Please save me. To see that desperation, to see that fear, to smell that fear. It, um, yeah, I carry it with me to this day. But what immense special creatures. Yes, they are not stupid at all. No, not. Well, thank you. Thank you. Because for, for a lot of us, you know, I, I care about animals, but I don't spend a lot of time around farmed animals. So it's sure. invaluable just hearing your, your personal experience with these beings. Um, so how did, how did yeah. things go at the sheep farm? What, what happened? So unfortunately, as, yeah, as life would have it, um, our dream didn't materialize. Um, there were some family dynamics uh, that came into play when COVID struck, right? And the one party wanted to take the other party or did end up taking the other party. They still ended up taking one another to court and saying who owns, uh, who owns which part of the farm and who owns 
which, uh, you know, other shareholders, what amount, and it was a big, nasty old business. And then the, the shareholders got together and said, listen, we think it's going to be best if all the family just move off of the farm, including my grandparents and myself and my wife, let's just move, have everybody move off of the farm and then let's settle this thing in court. And then once it's settled, the victorious party can then move back to the farm. And these court cases are ongoing. Wouldn't you oh, believe boy. it's been almost, it's been three years. So oh, at, the, at the height of COVID, at, you know, drawing closer to the end of 2020, um, I, yeah, I was, I was basically, my wife and I were basically asked to leave the farm, right? Uh, so our hearts were absolutely shattered because we had just experienced almost three years of these atrocities. And now coming to think that was this all for nothing because we had this vision. Is it all now gonna come to absolute nothing? So that that completely just, I went into the deepest depression imaginable, right? Because now all the blood and the gore in my mind was for nothing. We had now lost our small unofficial sanctuary and we spent most of our money rehoming these 55 animals to good you know, to good homes and to to other sanctuaries and paying people a year in advance for the feed you know of these animals so we left basically with the clothes on our backs and um deeply depressed if i if i had to put it lightly yeah. having now lost having now lost the opportunity to turn it into a sanctuary was absolutely hard for me Wow. Wow. I can only imagine because it sounds like that, that vision was what was carrying you through all the, was you know, the gore was and the cruelty and for uh, that to be yeah. snatched away. Yeah. Why? Okay. So you, you left the farm and what, what did you do? You were in this deep depression. Your vision sure, was sure. gone. What, how did you carry on? So on my last days on the farm, uh, of course, at this point in time, I, mean, I was, as I said, severely depressed and not knowing where to go. It's at the height of COVID. At this point, obviously, we were living in the middle of nowhere, literally like, as I said, 40 kilometers from the nearest town, all gravel roads. Of course, you know, you're fearful, you know, your financial future, not sure what's going to happen. Um, I was on Facebook one day and I spoke to a very old friend of mine, which is briefly reconnected. And he mentioned that he's living in the US, um, or at least he did at the time. And uh, he had no idea of my personal circumstances, but he asked me just uh, out of the blue, Judge, would you be interested in moving to the US, he said, um, I'm helping a local farmer in North Dakota recruit South Africans to come work for him on his farm, right? And I was in dire straits and I said, um, well, connect us if you would. And, and so the farmer called me and we had a long conversation. And um, I remember specifically asking this gentleman, whether he had uh, animals on the farm, right? because he spoke of, you know, the farming all this grain and that grain. And I uh, just wanted to make sure, right? Because obviously my heart at this point was severely against, you know, animal farming. So I asked him about it and I remember him specifically saying, 
not unless you count the dog. And then we had a bit of a laugh and said, okay, now it's fine. And um, I ended up accepting a position to go work on his, and this is important to note, on his grain farm, right? And um, Had you ever been to the U.S. before? Not before, not before that. No, 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 never, never. So I had no idea what was waiting for me. So this was at a time when, when most international borders were also closed. But the U.S. allowed um, guys to come in who worked on the farms, right? Huh. Um, yeah, for some wow. other reason. They allowed, I guess it's because it's part of the food production, you know, a country needs to continue producing food. So they allowed um, us to come in. Um, and I remember I was on a plane, I think we were by literally by 25 people on the plane, right? So there were empty seats. Each person had like eight seats to him or herself. <laughs> and um, so I moved there thinking I'm going to work on a grain farm. And I wasn't too excited to go, but I did it. You know, it's what we need to do in order to survive, in order to, you know, have a place to stay and eat at the end of the month. My wife stayed behind. I went by myself. And um, you can imagine my absolute shock when we drove into this guy's farm and there was a massive feedlot housing approximately oh, well, more than 2,000 dairy cows, right? Mm -hmm. And I was entirely shocked. I initially thought that it must be the neighboring farm because I specifically asked this guy. And then just to realize that, that most of the grains farmed on the farm is for the animals in the feedlot. It's all interconnected, you know, with one right. another. But th but this is this guy's main source of income is having this, you know, two and a half thousand dairy cows in this feedlot. Oh and, my uh, goodness! What was that moment like when you when you saw when you uh, saw this? I don't have words. It's I, I don't have. I cannot begin to describe the disappointment. Um, fortunately, at the beginning, and yes, it does have a nasty twist, but I was, I did work, um, oh, I was actually supposed to be a sort of a manager, but it's, I don't want to make a long, boring story of that, but I, for the first couple of weeks, I worked on the grain side of the farm, because that's what I'd signed up for, and, um, but I always kept a keen eye on this feedlot, and I saw I saw many deceased cows spread throughout this feedlot. And again, it just broke my heart. And I remember I, I went to the guy who ran the feedlot on behalf of the farmer one day and I said, in a very gentle tone, but I said, when, when are you gonna take these cows out of the feedlot? I mean, they must have been lying there for several months, I guess, right? Uh, they had severed limbs and obviously they can getting trampled to mince by then, right? And, their skulls were crushed. It was, it was absolutely, it was like a scene from a horror movie, right? And uh, I remember this guy took a lot of offense, you know, because I'm, I'm the new guy. You know, I have no say. How dare I now pose this question? And I ended up saying, he said, never. I'll never forget it. He said, never. I'm never going to take him out. And then he ended up swearing, said they can and trample one another into the dirt for all I care, right? So on my first Sunday afternoon that I had off, my first Sunday afternoon day was also, I was given the afternoon off. I was supposed to go to town to get some basic groceries to stay alive, right? So 
I asked the farm, I said, listen, you don't have to pay me, but can I take the skid steer and can I at least take these deceased cows out of the feedlot? And he said, fine, yeah, you can do it. So I did it and I wanted to give them a proper burial. And, but he said, no, you need to pile them all up, you know, on, uh, on the side of the feedlot. And I said, well, I guess that's better than keeping them inside the feedlot. And uh, whilst taking them out of the feedlot, I mean, oh, and most of them still had their eyes open. And as I said, they had severed limbs and some of their skulls were crushed. And I just was driving that skid steer. I was just weeping. And uh, I think in my book, I said it was approximately 22 because I ended up taking 22 photos of, or oh, I took photos of 22 of these deceased cows, but there were definitely more because I couldn't take photos of all of them. And I, I didn't plan on taking photos, right? I was, when it was finally done, I remember walking home and sort of trying to pull myself together and sort of wiping the tears from my face. And when, when I got the phone call, I said, listen, Shayesh, you need to go back. You need to go take photos of their ear tags because they have tags in the ears, which has and had numbers on them. And we need to know which cows belonging to which tag number you took out of the, the feedlot. And I said, but how can I do it? They are piled up. They are in a gigantic pile taller than I am. I mean, you're talking about 30 odd deceased cows have been heaped up. And it was, I was just sort of said, listen, this is what you got to do. Just make a plan. Just So imagine me climbing a minor hill of deceased rotting carcasses. It's a vegan's nightmare. <laughs> anyway. To, to take photos of their ear tags. And I'm just kind of there, I'm just thinking, what am I doing with my life? And how can my species be so cruel? How can we do this to innocent beings? So that's how, that was sort of my introduction into the dairy industry, if I can call it so. But the, the farmer was so impressed by this act of mine, the fact that I was willing to take out the deceased cows on my own time, he didn't have to pay me, he was impressed by it. And he and the guy who ran his feedlot had a falling out. And the, apparently, the farm, well, this is what the farmer told me, that he heard via the grapevine that this guy who ran his feedlot was going to leave his service in the next couple of months. He's going to go on holiday to the Ukraine and he's never going to come back. Now, whether that's true, I, I don't know. I don't really care, but that's just what the farmer told me. He said, basically, he said, George, I'm so impressed by what he did for the cows, you know, and uh, he made it almost like a religious thing. He said, you're a godsend, right? You know, I've been, I've been praying for you, you know, that sort of thing. Here's my, you, you, you are almost like a lifeline for me, right? And, um, and he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kick this guy out, the guy who had just run my feedlot for 15 odd years. I'm going to catch him in inverted commas before he catches me, right? I'm going to get him out, out of the old and in of the new. He's the old, you're the new. You are now, as of Monday, you are running the feedlot. And I'm saying, there is no way. I can't do it. I can't do it. Especially because the artificial insemination or artificially inseminating 
these cows was a big part of this guy's job, right? The guy running the feedlot. So I knew if I accepted that position, I mean, that's what I would have to do. And I just said, there's no way. You, you don't understand. I don't even eat meat. I, I, I am against animal cruelty. And, and I was basically told my way or the highway. I remember he literally showing me the gate of the farm. He said, you see the gate over there? He said, there's a toll road going from there and you're going to go da 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 and that's where the nearest town is and if you go and take this road and that then you're going to head straight to the city you're more than welcome to go and of course I mean at this time I have no transport whatsoever it's a North Dakota winter I mean we had minus 38 degrees Celsius up there I mean I'm from South Africa for goodness sake I mean, <laughs> we hardly get winter it's winter now I'm sitting here in shortly short sleeve shirts um, it's snow as far as the eye can see. It's basically my way or the highway, you know. Um, don't let me stop you. And I, I still regret it to this day, Chris. But unfortunately, I yielded and I took the job. I, I started running this guy's feedlot for him, and uh, I did it for three months. So that means that I artificially inseminated those dairy cows for almost let's say 100 days right six days a week um, up to sometimes 55 or 60 cows per day which was absolutely atrocious i mean it broke it broke my being but it's not it's not about me and i and i say that over and over again in my book it's not about me and what i went through it's about those Poor animals and what and what I put them through. It, it, I struggle to find the words. It, it still keeps me awake some nights. Um, I was already severely depressed going there, but that just—I mean—I just plummeted into the most severe depression, severe depression ever. I mean, I was so suicidal. I couldn't live with myself, basically. Um, of course, I try to make the most of it. I would go to work a half an hour early every morning and just go love on the cows, just go stand with them. And they are the most, well, I know I said earlier that sheep are the gentlest creatures ever, but I mean, wow. <laughs> I think sheep sheep are close second to, um, to cows. Man, they are such gentle, innocent, beautiful beings. And they were just, regardless of the atrocities that awaited them, you know, they would just love on me. They would just almost nibble at my face and almost kiss me. And I got a, a, a soccer or a football. I'm not sure what you guys call it in the U.S. We call it soccer, right? Um, I, I got a soccer ball and I would play football with them. I was soccer and kick it about. And of course, they have no idea what they're doing. They're just chasing <laughs> the ball and they, you know, jumping up and down, almost like a child skipping with joy. You know, they're skipping about. And um, anyway, but yeah, so it was bittersweet because, in the one hand, I could treat them better. And I did yeah. treat them better than they were um, what they were used to. Right. But still, but still, unfortunately, you know, through the AI process, it was it was pretty horrendous. Yes. Wow. Yeah, and I I appreciate your point about 
you know, it, it's the animals who are, who are the victims. But I mean, I, I would argue that there are so many victims in this, in this framework, you know, because the people like you, obviously in your case, you were, you were duped into, you know, traveling from your home country for this job. And then, you know, talk about a bait and switch. Um, and the people I, I, I really, I, I'm just curious, just your personal impression, like what, what are the people, what were the other farmers like, like both in this feedlot and, and on the sheep farm, like, do they become dehumanized or are they still mm. kind people who just compartmentalize and detach? You know, what, what were those, what were those humans like? Wow. Um, I still consider them to be kind individuals, right? I would have many good quality, kind conversations with many of them. But when it comes to, you know, the animals, they were just desensitized. They just absolutely felt nothing. I remember one day, and I'm doing my best, you know, in, in these cruel circumstances to still love on the animals and still try to make the best of it. And I remember just one of the guys, and he didn't even work on the dairy side of things. He was like, a, 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 he worked on the grain side of it, right? And a, he just got off the tractor and he just took a massive rock the size of, of my fist, right? Just for no reason, just took a rock and he just threw it at one of the cows and he struck her right above the eye and she was bleeding and, she, and he laughed. He just made nothing of it for no reason whatsoever. And there I was again, the weird one, up in arms and nobody understands what is my issue, if that makes sense. So. I found them to be both kind in the one sense, as most humans can be, but completely desensitized to to the animals. And uh, I just oh. could never get my head around it. I just couldn't. Wow. I just couldn't understand it. Yeah. Very, very interesting. And so, it just reveals such an ugly side of human nature. It's it's yeah, of very, course. very interesting. I think we all have we all yeah. have the capacity for you know, great love and great yeah. beauty, but we also yeah. have the capacity for that heartlessness and, and cruelty. It's, it's very, very strange. So, so again, yeah. how did, how did things play out? How did you, wow. how did you, you know, make your escape from this? Wow. Yeah. So what, what happened was uh, the one evening after I had, let's say, done the AI process for, I think it was about 100 days, right, and counting. And I was so depressed on the one night we were living in this dilapidated house. All the guys working on the farm lived in this house on next to a, a smallish forest, right? And the one night I just wandered into the forest, not really knowing what am I doing, because it was, as I said, the North Dakota in winter, it was incredibly cold, right? But I wandered off and um, I... I went and I sat by this small little creek and I had this little rustic old blade with me, right? And I was sitting there and I started playing, almost cutting away at my wrist and it started to bleed ever so slightly. And I just, and I just realized in that moment, this is it for me, man. I've 
or at least it felt like I've got nothing left to live for. I've gone too far. I've, I've, I've lost everything. I can't live with the cruelty anymore. This non-vegan world and the atrocities that I'm now being drawn into and that I'm inflicting, it's, 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 it's just too much. I can't live with myself. I, and I'm sitting there and I'm just planning on cutting off my wrist. And um, the next moment while sitting there, this enormous elk, now keep in mind, it's pitch black dark outside, right? This enormous elk comes walking down the hill straight at me from the opposing, from the opposite side of the creek. He's walking straight at me and I'm sitting there dumbfounded thinking, how oh, can it not see me? But this is an enormous elk. And I've, ne I've never seen one before that, right? It had this gigantic antlers and I'm just amazed at its beauty. And I'm thinking, it's coming straight at me. Obviously it wants to get to the water, I assumed, right? But can it not see me? Surely I must in his mind be a threat to him, right? But it cannot see me. And if he can't see me, surely he must be able to smell me, right? Um, but still, he kept walking towards me and I started backing off ever so slowly and I shut by, sat by a tree in the shadows just watching it and um, the next moment I saw at second glance I saw that it had been shot in the face of all things and his entire lower jaw was dangling almost in the wind, it was hanging like a wet cloth from his face. It was the most horrific sight ever. And he was so desperate for water in his dying moments that he was willing to risk it. Despite me being there, he just kept on coming and he stuck his face to the, to the water. And I could literally see his lower jaw sort of jangling in the water with the, with the creek's flow. I'm thinking, what on earth are we doing to these poor animals? Again, hearts are broken all over again in that moment. And um, it, it ended up wandering off into the dark of night. And I wanted to follow it. So I did. And I had my small cell phone light and I followed its trail. And it was quite easy to do because it was bleeding profusely into the white snow. So it was quite easy to see where it was going. And I followed him for several hours, right? Deep into the early hours of the morning. And um, following, was following his trail that evening. I just, I just dedicated my life to the animal liberation cause. I just found the world to love. And I just realized in that moment, no, Jake, it is not over. It is not over for you. You've still got a lot to give. You can turn this thing around. You can, as I said, dedicate your life to the animal liberation cause. You've got a story to tell. You can, you can make a difference, man. This, this doesn't need to be the end. It is the end for this poor elk, which is surely, you know, about to die. This is his final moments. But this doesn't have to be your end. You can turn this around. So I did. I never went back to work. I, I resigned the following morning, never went back to work, and was given a lift to the city, which was three hours away. And 
performer didn't take it too badly. He, he was actually okay with it. Um, he respected my decision, and uh, I moved. Yeah, I moved back home to South Africa, and that was the turning of a new page for both my wife and I. And finally, we could come out and live these bold, vegan, happy lives and say we are. We've been vegan technically for several years now, but we've been paid off of the backs of innocent sheep. And then we got paid off the backs of innocent dairy cows. But my goodness, we've done all of that. We we can start speaking for the animals and um, just, as I said, live bold vegan lives in the open and try to inspire other people's, people to choose love and compassion. Yes. I'm curious about your wife because she didn't she didn't experience firsthand all of this cruelty that you, that you had witnessed so mm. did she did she embrace it sounds like she really embraced this cause as well it sounds like you know she just she just had the heart yeah, to understand really it is that how did, how did her transformation yes. happen She's a very gentle being. I mean, she quit eating meat, as I said, while still living in our hometown of Worcester before ever moving to the sheep farm. She was so moved by it when I told all the lambs. She was in tears and she was just, she just took to the animal liberation cause like a fish to water, right? And um, she never wanted me to go to the States. And when I arrived, then I told her of the, of the feedlot, she said, just come home. We'll sort it out. You don't have to do this. Don't worry about us. You know, life has a funny way of working out. You know, just follow your heart, James. This is not your heart. Your heart is for the animals. Don't, don't be scared. Don't fear the financial side of things. Just come home immediately. I'll move your ticket. I'll make a way. She said, I'll, I'll find you a lift. I'll go onto Facebook. I will have somebody come pick you up. So she was the one fighting for the animals. And I'm like the rational thinker saying, no, no, I got to hang in there. I got I to gotta do this. You know, how are we going to live? How are we going to eat? So she was... She was from the get-go. She was all for the animals, man. Yeah. From the from the first story, from the first instance right. of those right. of those animals dying, of those two little lambs dying on our kitchen floor. She was all for the animals. Right, all for the animals and all for you. <laughs> she wasn't just fighting sure, for them. Sure. She was fighting for you. Wow. Sure, she was. Sure. Boy. So so what's it what's it been like since then? So well, it's been incredible. It's also been it's been scary because obviously we had no income coming home, and um, but you know life does have funny way to turn out, even if it takes several months. But you know if you follow your heart, I believe, and I've seen it in my own life, things does have a way to work out for you. So uh, we came home, and um, I actually. I was cured from my depression, really, just making that move, leaving the animal, uh, the, 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 you know, those cruel circumstances. Um, I was, my depression was gone and I could, I could start helping others. So I set up a small life coaching practice and the need was there. I just wanted to help other people because I knew how terrible it is if you can't get yourself out of bed, you know, you're so depressed. Um, so I thought I started advertising my life coaching services 
Fortunately, I had done a master's degree before ever moving to the sheep farm. And I, not knowing that I would use it one day, I majored in life coaching of all things, which in 2014, 15, wasn't really a big thing in South Africa, but I ended up doing it. And it, it helped me a lot. And so when I set up this life coaching practice, it, um, I was just flooded with people that needed help. I mean, it was COVID. Many people were sort of seeking answers and wanting help. And of course, the answers are within us. But um, I, was, I was surprised at, at the need. And I started reaching out to uh, vegan activists and said, listen, I'm willing I'm willing to help you for free if you have, if you would like to walk a journey with me. So several people in the vegan space, especially activists, took me up on the office. So that sort of opened a couple of doors for us to really step into the animal liberation sector. And in the first, it, it took me about a year and a half to finish my book um, called Ex Farmer Goes Vegan. I wanted to keep the title as self-explanatory as humanly possible. And uh, so it took me uh, quite a long time. It isn't a thick book whatsoever, but it took me quite a while because it was a tough write. It was difficult for me to relive those things. So I would write a chapter and I would cry for five days and I would say, I'm done, I'm not gonna go on with it. And then I would say, no, no, you have to go back. And I would rewrite the chapter and then I would take a week break and then do another chapter. Um, and in those breaks, I, both my wife and I, we started creating vegan-inspired children's literature, right? Which was never on the cards. It was never part of our plans. I just wanted to approach veganism because writing my book was such a dark experience. I just wanted to do something fun. I just wanted to paint veganism in a very fun and exciting light. And, you know... There's no better way to do that through children's literature. And so we uh, started playing around with rhyme schemes and sort of took to the, to the style of the legendary Dr. Zeus. So we started experimenting. And the next moment, we had several vegan-inspired children's books. And uh, my wife, bless her soul, <laughs> she sees such, such an inspiration for me when I read her my first little vegan-inspired tale, which is called Freya and the King. She said, you know, J.H., I want to do the illustrations. I was a part of this journey. Of course she was. She said, I don't want to source it out to another children's book illustrator. What I'll do is I will teach myself to do these illustrations and I want to do it myself. So she <laughs> took a year, a year to do those illustrations and she's still at it. You know, we still, we're now collaborating with a few very interesting vegans or people working in the vegan space. And I'm writing and she's illustrating <laughs> and life has been good. A couple of books and collaborations later and we're still going and Wonderful. dreaming again, again yeah. of starting a sanctuary and yeah. So life tell is, me this, you also launched a website called Veganism Has Won. Uh, tell me about that title. How did you come wow. up with that name for your website? It's a, it's a great question. It has its roots in, it's, it's a positive proclamation. It actually started with my own life. I was on the verge of ending mine, right? And 
And then I didn't because of veganism. So veganism has won in my life. If, it's, if you want to if you want to consider it as a fight which is fair and if you want to consider veganism as a fight you know for the animals I, I definitely feel that way you know it's an ongoing battle mm-hmm. I know and we know that the battle is far from one however veganism has triumphed where there's one in my life and it is one in mm-hmm. your life and it is one in my wife's life and it is winning in the individual lives of of the animals who get saved, you know, through the vegan choices that we make. So it is almost mm. reframing it. It is it's a play on words. Um, yeah, we have we that. have received yeah. some feedback, um, some pushback on the name, but we we love it because there's a story behind it. Oh, I think it's fantastic, and yes, that deeply personal aspect makes makes total sense now that you put it that way. Thank you. So um, I'm curious, have you ever seen a documentary called Peaceable Kingdom? No, I haven't. Because I would really, yeah, I would really recommend that to you. To me, it's one of the most beautiful vegan documentaries I've ever seen. I've seen a lot of vegan films and this one is beautiful, but I think you might particularly resonate because it tells the story of three individuals who are animal farmers. Um, One's a cattle rancher, another woman um, starts raising goats. And so it's these these three farmers who are in the business just like you were and have a change of heart and and become just like you, become animal activists, vegan advocates. Um, It's a beautiful, beautiful film because it, it tells a story from just that deeply human perspective of people just again just like you you know in the midst of this business and just knowing in their souls this isn't right you know this this isn't right i have to do something so i would i would highly recommend that film to anybody but but especially to you um in fact i would love for for some sort of sequel to happen you know maybe maybe you can be part of a sequel or something because imagine that (laughs) yeah yeah what is what is the name again it's called peaceable kingdom so p-e-a-c-e-a-b-l-e kingdom okay peaceable peaceable kingdom peaceable sounds incredible yeah it's beautiful the subtitle is the journey home and I've met wow. uh, I've met one of one of the farmers, uh, former farmers featured in the film, is a is a really lovely man named Harold Brown, who's a former okay. former cattle rancher, and wow. you know he often talks about how, you know here he is trying to save animals, but chances are he has you know personally overseen the slaughter wow. of more more mm-hmm. cows than you know any any of us ordinary people can even envision Gosh. so um and, and heart, just yeah. a wonderful lovely man um so anyway um jage thank you so much for sharing that story i've got just a couple more questions for you um first of all your your book which again i highly recommend will include the link in the show notes ex farmer goes vegan you've got quite a few poetry passages in there um so oh, you're yes. clearly clearly a poet did did writing poetry and does writing poetry you know help you make sense of your human experience 
Yeah, it does. It does. It definitely. I started writing poetry when the depression set in on the sheep farm. Right, I. It was a means for me to cope through through those dark days. So it just felt just felt right. It was just sort of the right thing to include that in in my journey. But then again, coming out of it, and some of those poems were actually written on the sheep farm and some of them were written on the dairy farm and some were then written as a vegan later on. Um, so yes, it was a means for me to cope and um, it just felt right. It just felt right to, to include the poetry in, in the book. I, I think that was a wonderful choice and it just really adds this sort of universal tone to, to the book. Thank you. Um, so Thank again, you so we'll much. include all that information in the show notes. Um, yeah. What's the best place for people to find you, JH? Is I it just, at your website? It is currently at our website called veganismhasone.com. It is undergoing a minor facelift because we've been full-time animal liberation activists for six months now and it's been a learning experience to say the least so we are in the process of narrowing our focus but that is currently the best place to reach us and please uh, if you'd like please reach out would love to hear from you Um, my book is available on the website and since releasing it two months ago my wife and I thought it well to make it free of charge. So you can literally get it for free from our website, veganismhasone.com. And if you like it, please share it with a friend or a loved one. I still send it to, you know, meat eating friends and family all over the globe. And I I tend to get decent feedback. So please share the love if you, yeah. Yeah. If you're open to do so. Right, right. I think that's a great recommendation. And I definitely plan to do so. All right, Jage. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing this deeply personal story. And you're, you're really just exceptional experience. I'm so glad that you're sharing it because you really just have, have a variety of experience that almost nobody else does. So it really is priceless in that regard. And I just, it just really moves me and inspires me to see you, you know, putting, putting that to use. And I love how your, how your depression suddenly miraculously lifted once you got yourself out of a, a toxic, cool environment and on a path toward, toward helping it. it, That makes total sense to me. So again, thank thank you. you, And, you know, much love to you and your wife um, across, across the globe. So, so final question, which you, which you may be prepared for, um, but it's one that I like to ask all my guests is, is there a particular word that for you sums up what being vegan is all about? It's on my forearm. It's compassion. You might have able to sit now. It's compassion. It's we're driven by compassion. And I think we are, as humans, we are inherently compassionate and we just go, we just need to go dig for it, man. It is there in the hearts of every person alive. So without any doubt, compassion. 
Perfect. Yeah. And I would say that you yourself, even, even in the worst circumstances one could possibly imagine, you really showed compassion in the sense of really, I think the, you know, the etymology of the word compassion means, you know, being with, being with another being in their suffering. And you were there with these animals in their, in their suffering, giving them what comfort you could. And what else can we do? What, what better gift is there that we can possibly give? So that's, that's precious. Again, that's precious. Thank you so much for joining us. And we close every episode by taking 30 of 30 seconds of silence for all of yes. the suffering animals, human and non-human, yes. who desire, as we all do, safety, happiness, and the freedom to live out their lives without Brilliant. interference. So, Jay, I invite you to join me in 30 seconds of silence Thank you. for the Thank animals. You. Thank you for having me. Thank you for oh, having my me. My pleasure. My pleasure. And we'll conclude with the sound of the bell. Thank you, JH, and thank you, Posse. See you next time. Until then, stay strong and stay true.